0: All right. How's everybody doing? So not great? Okay, cool. Uh, I realized today as I was preparing, the last time I got to speak at group was 10 months ago. So if you weren't here, obviously it went great. Um, I'm excited though. It's been 10 months and tonight's topic, as Ryan said, is division. So it's kind of nice to have not been here for a while and then to come in and just drop a bomb on you, which is what we're gonna do. A A holy bomb, a gracious bomb but a bomb nonetheless. So I was in fourth grade when I broke my arm. Uh, I went to a private school there, and at this private school where my mom also taught, there was this uh, stairway, it was a big concrete stairway, and it went down from the parking lot level to where the classroom doors were. And as it descended right next to it, there was a ledge that stayed up at that level. And so, you know, given the choice between walking down the stairs to class or jumping over the ledge, I mean being in fourth grade and being super cool, obviously I chose jumping over the ledge every time. Now this is gonna be important, um, just so you know. So uh, around this time in fourth grade, uh, my mom took me shopping with her. Now if you've ever gone to private school, you know if you had to wear uniforms, the only way you could flex was with a nice pair of shoes. right? And if you were ever at a private school having to wear a uniform in elementary school, you knew that you didn't have money to buy a nice pair of shoes. So you had to depend on your mom or your dad. And so I knew we were going shopping for a new pair of shoes. As a rapidly growing fourth grader, I needed a new pair of shoes. And so we went to, I think it was like Marshalls or Ross. I'm 33, but I'm pretty sure those are around at this time. You're doing the math in your head. Don't worry about it. So we went here. Now, it's a little bit harder to find a pair of shoes to flex with at Marshall or Ross, but it can be done. At the very least, you can come out with some shoes that look okay, you know, a pair of Chucks or something like that. On this particular day, I did not leave with a cool pair of shoes. I left with a hideous pair of shoes. And in addition to committing the crime of being ugly, these shoes were also generic. All right, I was not enlightened then, so I was wearing non-name brand shoes that were really ugly. These are before the days of, what are those? But they were still like, what are those? That kind of shoe. So uh, in addition to all of that, the third strike against these shoes was that they were almost a full size too big. But for some reason, my mom was like, this is an amazing deal. You have to get these shoes. They're ugly and they're cheap. So <laughs> Awesome. So I bought these shoes, or my mom bought these shoes for me. I had to wear them to school after uh, going through the embarrassment of not being able to flex. I'm 33, I still don't know how to flex, clearly. Some of you are nodding, that's not cool. Um, Everything was going fine, past the momentary embarrassment, it was okay. Uh, One day we were getting ready to leave for school again. My mom taught at the school, so I left a lot later than all the other kids. I'm strapped into our Dodge minivan. It feels basically a dumpster with wheels, you know, the big boxy Dodge minivan. My mom is like bumping Kirk Franklin cassettes. Again, cassettes, I'm 33. And uh, I remember I left my backpack in the classroom. So my mom lets out a sigh. She's like, okay, go on, go run out there. I'm like, okay. So I run to the classroom. Now, given the choice between walking down the steps and jumping the ledge, I'm gonna save a full 10 seconds if I jump off this ledge. And so I run to jump off the sledge. Now, as I jump, you know, I realize kind of in midair that I have misjudged the takeoff, which is surprising given the athlete I clearly am. And so my foot, again, wearing shoes that are about a size too big, which to this day I blame my mom for, but it's okay. God forgives. My toe catches on the ledge, and I head straight down to the next level head first. Now by God's grace, and I still thank him for this, I had enough time to brace myself. So I put both arms forward and I landed with a thud, but there was also another much more terrifying sound and it was a loud crack. It was a snap, like the breaking of a really big dead stick. And so I kind of sat up dazed, a little bit woozy, and I look at my arm and it's in the shape of an L complete L. Both my radius and my ulna have snapped in half. Somehow they did not break through the skin, but I knew in that moment my arm is not supposed to look like this. And So I did the first thing any brave fourth grade boy would do. I screamed for my mother, who again was in the van blasting Kirk Franklin. So I'm like, Mom! Mom! And I'm like screaming, and she finally hears me, and she's like, oh shoot. So she runs out of the door, comes to me, and she does what any mom would do in that situation. Not any doctor, what any mom would do in that situation. Brennan, can I borrow your arm for a second? I'm on the ground. She grabs my arm and she goes, he broke his arm! She's shaking my broken arm and it's like spaghetti in her hands. I mean, it's bad. Thank God somebody else heard my mother screaming bloody murder and came out and was like, okay, woman, you need to calm down. Let's let that thing rest. And the L turned into a lowercase l. and. Um, we got in the in the van for a short trip to the doctors. It was a short trip, thankfully. Still enough time for my mom to quote half of the Psalms on the way there. But it was clear that I needed real medical attention. Motherly attention was great, but I needed medical attention. I needed a professional to take a look at my broken body and help us set it straight and repair. Now, I tell you that story not to make fun of my mom. Well, not just to make fun of my mom. But I tell you that today because this is a pretty good example about how we tend to approach brokenness of any kind. Now, it's easy to see when we approach brokenness of a body, we freak out, okay? Now, after you've broken a bone, it's a little bit different. I I don't know why I like watching skateboard injury videos. It's weird. It's perverse. But anyway, when we break something, we freak out, right? Like right away, that's the first thing we do. But it's not just with physical things. When we have issues internally or there's a barrier in relationships or communities, we can sense them. We know that something is off. Maybe it's awkwardness or irritability or loneliness. There's clearly a barrier to intimacy or stability. And we know these aren't mere feelings. Everybody here has stories about feeling off and then knowing later that those signals pointed to deeper, bigger problems. Problems that required real attention. When we are confronted with things like this, We might freak out, scream a little, shake something that shouldn't be shaken. We do this to deal with something in the moment, and sometimes in the process, we find we have made things much worse. I still love you, mom, it's okay. But there's more to be done, there's help to seek. Things need to be treated and set right. As Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, he's writing this because the church is in a state of brokenness. They should be healthy, they should be flourishing, but being merely human and still in process, this church is broken, it is stagnated, it is in disrepair. This is why he starts, and you probably covered this verse in the first week. 1 first Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that Paul gets like right to business. I thank God for you, all that good stuff. Here's the deal. I appeal to you that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. The problem with the church in Corinth is the same problem that plagues and tempts us today. What is to be held together in Christ is being set apart by rebellion and selfishness. Tonight, we're going to take a look at division, what it is, what it isn't. We're going to look at scripture to diagnose it. We're going to prescribe some treatment to set it right, and we're going to pray for the courage to commit to the process of healing By no means do I claim to be an expert in the healing of division, but I'm pretty experienced at causing it. So I trust tonight that you will grant me the grace of knowing that I don't have all the answers, but that scripture has way more than I could ever come up with. And so uh, we're going to share stories of failure together. We're going to share stories of success together, and we're going to lean in on the healing unity of the body of Christ. Does that sound good? Does that sound good? All right, let's continue. Now there are two ways to diagnose a problem. Each looks at something from a different perspective and both can be vital to healing. One way to diagnose a problem is to think about what you expect to see and to find out if it's there or not. Earlier this summer, for example, I worked out for like three weeks. I was about to go to this trip to Jacksonville, Florida. Now if you've ever been to Jacksonville, Florida, it is the Florida of Florida, right? probably know what that means. There's nothing to do there but eat terribly, which makes you sleep terribly. And so I took preventative measures. I said, I'm going to work out. Now, uh, I'm going to run, I'm going to ride my bike, I'm going to lift. I mean, obviously not a lot, but I'm going to lift, right? And I'm going to do all this because at the end of this, I expect to look different. So three weeks of this, you know what I got at the end of that? Nothing. 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 Some of y'all are nodding. Why are you nodding? I got nothing. I looked exactly the same. Clearly there was a problem there. Something wrong in my equation. I found out later it's just my metabolism. In your 30s, it, under the cover of Satan's darkness, it slows down big time. And so uh, you diet now. That's a thing. So if you're not in your 30s, look forward to that. In the case of the church, in the Corinthian church here in particular... Paul expects to see, we would expect to see, a thriving community of Spirit-filled and Spirit-led people. He lays out these expectations very clearly at the end of chapter 2. That's where we're going to start if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 2.12. This is where we're going to jump in tonight. He writes, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is Paul saying that he has been spiritually imparted with God's wisdom to teach it to people who are spiritual. He continues in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The spirit gives spiritual people the mind of Christ. So what does that look like? Elsewhere, in Ephesians 4, he writes this, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking truth and love, we are able to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or as the natural person does in the futility of their minds. It's a lot of words to basically say this. The church, when it's healthy, has unity, knowledge, fullness, maturity. It is cooperating. It is working. When it's broken, none of those things appear. When Paul anticipates a functioning, mobile, healthy body of Christ in Corinth, he's confronted with its opposite. And this is not what God desires. More than just functioning, God desires our flourishing. But like a developer whose website is not working, there's a bug in the code. Something has gone wrong, a line is broken. That's one way to diagnose a problem. What we expect to see is not there. The second way to diagnose a problem is to think about what should definitely not be present. How many of y'all have ever sat in a worship service? Right, it's the first question. It should be a lot of you, come on. How many of y'all have sat in a worship service, right? How many of you have heard somebody on stage play a really bad note? It's okay, I won't get offended. It's probably my brother that played it. He's not here tonight, it's okay. So on Sunday morning, we're rehearsing for the service. We do that every Sunday morning. And we're playing the song, and it's a new one, and I was debating whether or not to say this part of the story, but I changed the key that night, okay? And so my brother's like, it's cool, I got it. So that morning, we're playing, we end the song, and we're supposed to land on this note, and he lands like, A half note higher now that doesn't sound like a lot but it might as well be like not even playing on an instrument it sounds so bad and the problem is in the moment everybody who's like praying or ministering before the service looks up like what just happened right even small things that are not supposed to be present when they are can become off-putting they can become jarring they can threaten to ruin the entire experience Not only is the Corinthian church missing all these Holy Spirit signs, unity, maturity, cooperation, it is infested with the signs of the flesh. Paul continues, 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He's not pulling any punches. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, only in a natural way? You know, it's interesting he mentions jealousy and strife as the lifestyle, as the symptoms of the flesh. In Galatians, in the same way, these things would be grouped with immorality, sexual immorality, impurity. Impurity. Envy, drunkenness, jealousy, fits of rage, division, all these things represent the life of the flesh. Now, unlike most of us, Paul doesn't see a hierarchy of sins in the nature of the flesh. Think about what we typically confess in our small groups, right? Think about how jarring it is for somebody to be super vulnerable and be like, I'm struggling with sexual immorality. I'm struggling with porn. It hits us differently than somebody who's like, I got really angry driving today or I'm kind of jealous of a coworker's promotion. Paul doesn't find any lines between sin. What he sees is a lifestyle of rejection of the spirit. We're clearly more comfortable with certain sins than Paul was. He sees things differently because God sees things differently. Each manifestation of the flesh is a sign of a pervasive worsening and acute internal decay. It's rare that one symptom of death appears by itself, as we'll see continuing through 1 Corinthians. Most of those things listed in Galatians as the signs of the flesh are present in the church in Corinth. It's not just jealousy and strife. We see later that they're tolerating sexual immorality, that they're corrupting the Lord's Supper. Their division arrives arm-in-arm with debauchery. Each sin worsens the other. The flesh might love division, but make no mistake, it is absolutely unified in its attempt to break down the health of the church. You see, every sin and any sin matters because the way of the flesh is not a series of isolated missteps, but an all-encompassing descent from the life of the kingdom. The flesh is never satisfied with one sin. It wants to corrupt, absolutely. This is why division is such a threat to the church. It's an incursion by an enemy force intent to destroy our ability to partner with God in his mission of redemption for the world. Division is a cancer hell-bent on guiding us toward death. Elsewhere in his letter, Paul is clear about how sin can affect the body. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take much to ruin everything. Sin is not something that will sort itself out. How many of y'all watch sports of any kind? It's a pretty broad question. So even if it's like lacrosse, I don't have to know. You can still raise your hand. It's totally cool golf. It's totally cool. I don't know. When an athlete has an injury, it's really important for them to take all the time to rehabilitate because your whole body goes into uh, compensating for what's injured. So if you sprain your ankle, you put more weight on the ankle that isn't sprained, which puts a stress on muscles, joints, bones that... Your body is not typically used to carrying. This is why you see NBA players. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins, this last season, that dude's had more surgeries in the last two years than like, I don't know, cool analogy. So he, he's like, he's, <laughs> I should have written something down there. I just wrote DeMarcus Cousins. Cool, Caleb. Great job. So he tore his ACL, probably came back too early, ripped his quad, probably came back too early from that popped his achilles and now he's just trying to survive and keep his career going all of it's related sin is the same way if it's tolerated or worse condoned it will fester and grow within the body of christ it will force other parts to compensate related parts and division will run rampant division is what happens when we turn a blind eye to the needs of the body The Corinthians were committing sins of jealousy and pride and selfishness, and they needed Paul's help in snapping out of their malaise. They needed to be set right. Paul recognized the gravity of the issue in front of him for the endurance of this church. True division, what he is defining here for them and for us today, is not conflict on its own. It's not a gap of understanding or difference of opinions True division is more than the occasional works of the flesh. True division is a separation of desires. Here is how we're going to define division for tonight. Division is unchecked sin in the body of Christ. As simple as that. Division is unchecked sin in the body of Christ. It is a pervasive, metastasizing rebellion against the authority of Jesus, a perversion of the ways and aims of his kingdom that spreads among us like wildfire. This is rejection of the life of the Spirit, and thus it's also an acceptance of death apart from Christ that starts with a detachment from his body. This condition must be addressed for the life of the church. To put it simply, we're either alive together or we're dying apart. He continues, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Who wants to be merely human? Just pause right there. I mean merely human. We're called to so much more. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers." You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Consider the analogies Paul uses for the church. The Corinthians are fighting over sides that don't exist. Paul doesn't describe a grouping of fields or a development of properties. He's speaking of a single field, a single building to highlight the absurdity of their division jealousy and strife have infested their church there is no cooperation or camaraderie rather there is an immature fighting over roles and worth you can almost imagine two workers in a field blooming ready to be harvested fighting over a single stalk of corn how silly would that be It makes no sense to us sin has stolen the perspective of the corinthian believers they no longer see one field they no longer see one building all of this infighting has turned their eyes and hearts away from the great blessing of the work before them jump down to verse 16 it's not just any building he says do you know that you are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in you we are a temple of the holy spirit A single temple of the Holy Spirit. Not several mini-temples combined into some superstructure, but a single construction for the indwelling of God's Spirit. The intentions for the body of Christ are clear, and it comes with a promise to the believer and a warning to the divider. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The more faithful we are to building community, the more we will experience the work of the Spirit in our lives, and in our communities, and in our churches. As Stephen Uhm says in his commentary on this chapter, we must be part of the building to receive the benefits of the foundation. Every brick matters. Each of us depends on the integrity of each other, because each of us depends on the foundation of Christ. We can't provide life for ourselves apart from the foundation of Christ crucified any more than a single brick could provide you with shelter from the elements. So here's where we are. We've diagnosed ourselves. There's clearly a problem. What we expect to see in the church is not there. What we don't expect to see is present. Things are very clearly broken. Let's look at treatment. So now we can scream like my mom did, and now we can go to the doctors. All right? Are you all still with me? All right. If you feel strongly about what you're seeing, and are an active part of the body of Christ, I'm here to tell you that it is probably the Spirit's urging for you to do something about it. A lot of us have had this feeling, the poking at our hearts, the discomfort that somebody needs to say something or do something to help or intervene. I can tell you confidently, if you have felt that way, you are that person. It's not somebody else's thing or process to own. It's yours to dive into for the benefit of everyone involved for the life of your church. Almost two years ago, uh, I I worked with uh, another guy who led worship at the same church I was at. We had multiple campuses. This guy was, in many ways, my mentor. I mean, walked me through what ministry looked like, especially worship-related ministry. And about two years ago, he we shared an office for a long time. At this point, we had offices right next to each other, which we would yell across all the time. And he's like, hey, I wanna go out to lunch. I wanna like, show somebody on my team that I value them. I wanna show this vocalist on my team that we value her, but I also wanna like, live above reproach. So would you come with me? So we can, she's gonna come here. We'll all ride in the same car. We'll go eat together. It'll be great. Um, would you come with me just to kind of make, keep everything above the board? I was like, well, sure because I was getting a free lunch. But also, like I wanted, I wanted to be a part of that. And so I did, I went with them. And I'll never forget, driving back to work after that lunch, I just had a feeling. I just had a feeling that something was not right in the moment, and it was hard to explain. I just, their, their interaction, the way they talked, there was something not right about the way things were set. And at this point in my life, I had every excuse in the book. This was the beginning of my physical rehab. I was still in crutches. I I didn't want to rock the boat. This is a guy that basically mentored me, so who am I to speak up to him that way? Have we cultivated a friendship that's strong enough to to bridge, like, if this is a misunderstanding? And so I didn't say a word. And two months later, he left the church in 20 years of ministry to pursue an affair with this woman. Lost everything. Broke apart a significant part of the church, and it's still trying to recover two years later. Now, by God's grace, our relationship as friends has begun the healing process, but there isn't a moment when I, don't, when I speak to him where I don't think about what might have happened had I been obedient to the urging of the Spirit. I'm telling you today to trust that urge to act. This is one way we mess up when approaching sin in the church, and one way we allow division to fester. We don't speak up. We enjoy the comforts of community, and we quietly believe that any kind of disruptive activity might rock the boat, that speaking up might actually cause division more than whatever is happening that's kind of set off our spiritual radars. This is incarnation without impartation. It's relationship that is only of proximity and not real Holy Spirit presence. Look, everybody here has a deep longing to be known and loved. I have that longing as much as you do. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, we all have that longing, but it exists beside a flesh that is, has an aversion to plummeting the depths of relational intimacy. The thing we crave for is the thing we're afraid to jump into. Incarnation without impartation furthers the division of the church because it seeks only affirmation of surface level identity rather than encouragement to conform to the identity of Christ. The Corinthian church was spiraling into factions at war over jealousies and competition, tolerating sexual immorality and making mockery of the Lord's Supper. They were together physically through all of this. They were still showing up to gatherings. They were still praying in unison. But in reality, in spirit, they could not have been farther apart. Paul's solution, deal with it. Don't do anything else. Don't come up with a list of reasons why you should turn your eyes to somewhere else. Deal with it because sin needs to be purged, as he says in chapter 5. If we are truly the family that we claim to be, we have to take the necessary steps to maintain our bond. We have to come to one another as true friends, and pain is a part of that process, but it isn't without purpose. Proverbs 27.6 reminds us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So I'll ask you, are you settling for shallow community? Are your relationships, even in this room, paper thin? Do you value politeness over process? Where is there sharpening in your circle of friends? Who in there is capable of wounding you? Another great question here might be, how easy would it be for you to leave your community? The weaker the bonds, the easier the exit. Now, that's one way we mess up in avoiding the division problem. Some of you in here are not nodding, but you're looking like inside, you're like, okay. So we'll continue. The second way, though, is the other side of it, where we come so certain of the truth that we're about to share that we wield it like a weapon. We reduce relationships to equations, people to projects. This is impartation without incarnation. This is all principles and no partnership. It's disembodied truth, and it's the kind of approach that is comfortable leaving bodies in its wake. But Paul warns us of dealing with division this way a few times in his letter. 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In the kingdom of God, talk is cheap. Paul knew this. In approaching the Corinthian church's schisms, as Ryan covered last week, he wrote this at the beginning of chapter 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men in the mind of a natural person, but in the power of God, attaining the knowledge of God, finding the maturity of God, the unity of God. That kind of weakness over words approach is built on a foundation of Christian humility and equality. How have you dealt with division that you've encountered? Do you speak the language of the trenches or do you come in guns loaded, ready to fight and to win? Would you rather signal your own holiness to others or seek it in walking with a friend? Truth might be easier to deliver to a stranger, but it's way less likely to be accepted. We need an approach that is invested and empowered, that avoids the ditch of fake community or disembodied truth, one that is present in a real, intimate way and unafraid to seek momentarily painful, but absolutely vital steps to healing. We have to follow Paul's example. We have to know and be known and then do something with that knowledge. Otherwise, we risk wasting this life of Christ that brings us together settling for surface smiles and common hobbies. When storms come, these won't keep us tethered together to the mast of the cross. So we need to address the vision. For our sake, for the sake of the church, we need to have hard conversations and be willing to put friendships on the line. Real brokenness requires real attention. So before we finish tonight, I have five tasks and questions we can all walk through as we engage in the process of resetting together to the unity of the kingdom. If you want to take notes, this is a great way to take notes, a great thing to take notes on. Five steps toward embodied and empowered healing process. The first, it's very simple. Pray. Pray first. Prayer is many things, but it is never less than these two, confession and conformity. The Lord is a better counselor than you are. I'm just going to repeat that. The Lord is a better counselor than you are. Before you say or do a thing, bring what's on your heart to God. Examine your motivations, your reactions, your feelings. Most of the issues that strike your heart will be better addressed with preparation. All of them will be better served with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The ambulance agrees. This will feel unnatural. To step aside and take this time to prepare, it might feel like an escape from discomfort, but in a world that desires immediate satisfaction and craves the affirmation of personal victories, patiently waiting on the Spirit becomes a powerful testimony. Here's the question to ask with that. Am I building a case or am I building the church? One takes patience and one is invested and the other is selfish. Second thing to do is assign positive intentions. In approaching somebody to confront sin, do as Paul did and come with authority and humility. This is a conversation with a beloved brother, a cherished sister. Your identities are not found in sin, but in the same blood of Christ. So don't assume, ask. That's a servant's posture. The same humility is required of the listener. If you are the one who's confronted, don't respond quickly with defense, but listen intently. Poor communication can often hide small kernels of truth. I experience this all the time as a worship leader. I mean, you just, every week, somebody's coming up to you, that was too loud, or that was too quiet, that one's rare, but occasionally. Uh, Or you talk too much, that one's way less rare. I get that one a lot. Or why don't you play this song, or why did you play that song? It'd be much easier for me to dismiss those, and there are definitely weekends where I would love to, but I know for the benefit of my church, I can take a moment to consider what's behind these comments and pray about what the Lord might have for me in each. Humility rests not on being perfect, but on seeking together the life of the Spirit and the mind of Christ. So ask yourself, am I seeking understanding or assuming I have it already? Number three. Everybody say number three. One more time. Number three. That was better. All right. Commit to stay. None of this matters if you're going to bolt right after this conversation. None of it matters. There's something in our nature that kind of rejects when people we don't know give us advice. Some of that's probably rebellion. but Some of it's probably wisdom too, right? Like I, I, Paul gets this. Shared vulnerability creates bonds of relationship. If you want to speak to me, I need to know you and trust that you have my best intentions in mind. Paul says that we are God's field. We are working in the field. We are God's building. We're doing this together. Nobody works remote in the kingdom of God. I don't get to share truth and then catch you on the other side. Jesus showed up, showed us truth, and left us his abiding spirit. If you can't commit to remaining in the body of Christ and walking with his brother or sister through healing, then you're not ready for a conversation. Share truth with someone and partner with them as they walk it out. Put some skin in the game. Offer your accountability, your prayer, your encouragement, your joy. Ask yourself, am I willing to see this through? Number four, go direct. I don't get to attend group as often as I used to, but in ministry, you kind of learn to keep your fingers on the pulse of what's going on. Um, Gossip seems to be something group is dealing with in this season. Now, being in the demographic that we're in, I'm 33, I feel like I can still say we. Just nod. It's cool. Yeah, that's fine. Being in the demographic, I'm sure gossip is something we deal with every week. It's just something, it's part of our human nature. It tugs at us, it tempts us. I'm sure we've dealt with it in every semester. But for some reason, I feel like it has popped up more so in these first couple weeks of this semester than it ever has. In any case, I have a simple rule of thumb. When you feel encouraged by the Spirit to address and not leave it unchecked, and that's simple, go direct. Don't recruit an army, don't spread a story. Prepare yourself in prayer get perspective, and go straight to the source. Now, most of the time, this is what we want to do last, right? Like, we don't want to do that. We want to, like, well, I'm going to ask this person what they think about this situation so I can make sure I'm right, even though they have nothing to do with the situation, right? We think that we're trying to prepare our story, but what we're actually trying to do is protect ourselves before serving the person we're approaching. This is pride. The same is true if we go to the person and withhold truth. So we might go straight to the source, but we might skip out on saying exactly what needs to be said. This is where I've been growing and failing a ton. I can say from painful experience that most of the time, the thing you least want to say is the thing that most needs to be said. I imagine any doctors in the room get this. It's never fun to deliver bad diagnosis right? Nobody relishes that part of the job, and yet that's the most necessary thing. If I'm going to die, I need you to tell me. Like, you just don't come out and be like, man, a couple essential oil drops under the tongue, you're good. When I have cancer, like that's not, what? I need to know. A friend knows that love is willing to go direct and speak the whole truth. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul does. Ask yourselves, am I sharing the words and ways of Christ? And finally, the fifth one is this, follow through. Any of y'all play basketball or watch basketball growing up? It's like a follow through. You know, so I can't shoot, but I can follow through. That's cool. So we talked about committing to the process, to healing, committing to stick around with somebody, committing to be invested. The last step is basically repeat. As long as the church exists here awaiting the return of Jesus who will fully and finally establish his kingdom and set all things right, Sin will continue to vie for our affections and our attention. It will seek pockets of influence within our communities, weak links within our ministries, opportunities to drive wedges and force schisms between us. We have to become people who address sin. This has to be a lifestyle and a lifetime of mending. Finally, ask yourself, am I ready to do this again and again and again? A few nights ago, my wife and I had some uh, very close friends over for dinner. Uh, As we do, every time we get together, we shared a meal, we made some drinks, I made some drinks, it's the only thing I can make, which doesn't speak about my lifestyle, just my ability in the kitchen. Our dinner table has become a safe safe space for us to talk and to share, a trust tree, if you will. I've come to really look forward to the sincerity of these nights, discussing together struggles and failures and needs, but also hopes and lessons and dreams. The tricky part is that somebody always has to go first and open this up. And so this last time, the person who did go first, she almost started crying like immediately and almost out of impulse, apologized. And uh, look, I realize this is going to sound insensitive, but my impulse was to laugh. Now, let me, let me explain why. Uh, this person cried and said, I'm really sorry about this. And I laughed and said, yeah, nobody has ever cried at this table, so you're good. Uh, I swear it was fine at the time. We all laughed. Great joke, Caleb. The reason I said this was because just about every person in the room that night around the table has cried at that table. For reasons seemingly small or overwhelmingly large, I've had some of my most difficult conversations with brothers and sisters right at that table. I've broken my heart open there. I've confessed sin. Almost got through it. I've spoken truth, I've prayed deeply, I've received correction, I've listened intently, I've made messes, I've navigated messes, life has happened there. And without failure, every time I've leaned into the process of refining at that table, of treating and attending to my sins and the sins of my church, I've watched God strengthen bonds and build the body of Christ around me. I've seen hopelessness open up to joy. I've seen questioning met with understanding and prayer. I've seen forgiveness unfold and deepen over time in ways I could never have fathomed. None of that came without pain, but none of it came without joy either. As we close tonight in prayer, I want to encourage you and to challenge you. You need the church, and you need a community, but you need a real community. You need people who know you, who will stand beside you, who can tell your weaknesses and will say something to you about it. You have to open yourself up to that. And as people open themselves up to you, you have to be willing to speak into their weaknesses. You need to build the church. Sin will separate you from the body of Christ. It will lie to you and tempt you to ignore it. Do not find it, treat it, purge it. Have the difficult conversations. Say the things that need to be said. Know each other deeply. Open yourself up and respond to the Holy Spirit. Don't settle for functioning where God desires flourishing. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you invite us into real unity, into true community. God, that as the son prays that your intention for your people is to experience the same unity that he has with you, with the spirit. This is what you desire of us. The fullness of flourishing, maturity, unity, cooperation, joy. You desire these things of us. But God, we know that on this side of Christ's return, that sin threatens us that it speaks lies to us, that it tells us the way of, of shallow comforts is more satisfying than the depth of Christian brotherhood and family. Help us to banish those lies. God, right now, I speak to the barriers in this room right now. By the power of the Spirit, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would fill us with your boldness to address them, God, to assign positive intentions to the people in this room called to you. That you would give us the words to say, the patience to say them well, and the love to deliver truth, even when we know it might hurt initially, to deliver it, God, and to trust that all of this is your, all of this is your work, all of this is in your hands. God, we thank you that the Spirit is moving in ways we can't see. Would you remind us of the promise of what we're building? the joy of being your temple together, of experiencing your spirit. Help us drive out the flesh. Help us have the hard conversations. Help us build this bond. We thank you, God, for this family. It's in the name of Jesus that we say together, amen.